All right. Well, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. All right. Well, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. We'll get started. Uh, all right. Well, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today, grateful for this morning. We are grateful for the cool, cooler weather. And we're grateful for your faithfulness. And grateful for a new beginnings um, in the new year as we as your people seek to live for you. I do pray specifically for these Bible studies that we're going to be doing uh, this morning in Second Thessalonians and then later in the book of Genesis. I pray for all of the classes uh, that are meeting in this building. Um, I pray for meetings going on this evening. I just pray for your spirit to superintend everything in such a way that you Assemble your people so that your name is glorified as we seek to worship you today in spirit and truth. And we find ourselves, Lord, in desperate need of the Holy Spirit to take the scriptures and make them understandable to us. We know there's nothing we can do as your people to lose our salvation, but we sometimes can inhibit fellowship. And that's why you've given us 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. So in preparation for the Spirit's illuminating ministry, we're just going to take a few private moments of silence before you so we can be prepared to receive from your word today. We're thankful, Lord, for a completed canon of Scripture, which can equip us for every good work. We're thankful for the gifts of the Holy Spirit by which truth can be ministered. And so uh, we gather today, Lord, to glorify you. And we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of being your people. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. If you can take your Bible and open it up to 2 Thessalonians 2. Going to move into verses 6 and 7 today. In our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Thessalonians. Um, as you know, this was um, these two books, First and Second Thessalonians, were among the earliest letters that Paul wrote. Paul, having planted the church in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, and then with those new converts for about six months to a year before being pushed out by unbelieving Jews heading uh, down south there to Corinth. 
And within a very short period of time, after having been displaced from Thessalonica, he starts to write letters to this new flock to address their concerns about prophecy, um, which he had already, you know, taught them about prophecy. But some of the finer details, you know, they needed more explanation on. And it's in Second Thessalonians that we learn of a problem that has developed. It's in verse 2. Um, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, i.e. the seven-year tribulation period, has come. So Paul had taught them that they would be removed from the earth via the rapture before the seven-year tribulation period starts. But this forged letter says, no, we're in the tribulation period now. And you could imagine receiving a letter like that from an apostle. You know, it would shake you up. Uh, That's why that word shaken is used there in verse 2. So at the heart of the letter, Paul is laying down the the criteria, if you will, for the seven-year tribulation period. And he's saying no one can say that they're living in the seven-year tribulation period unless they see these seven, excuse me, these five things happening on the earth. And his point is you haven't seen any of these things. So therefore, the information that you received allegedly from me is a falsehood. The first thing on his list, verse 3, is the departure the departure hasn't happened, and we talked through what that means. I'm of the persuasion that the departure is the rapture. And what he's saying is you're still here. <laughs> and as long as you're here and haven't departed via the rapture, then you can't say you're in the tribulation period. The second thing he talks about is the Antichrist, which he calls the man of lawlessness, in the temple, desecrating the temple. And that's something that's going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And so we sort of unpack the meaning of that, and he says, you haven't seen that happen. And now he moves into the third thing that they haven't seen yet, which is the removal of the restrainer. The restrainer is still here. And in the tribulation period itself, the restrainer is going to be taken away. He does say in verse 5, and a lot of people will skip right over verse 5, but verse 5 explains why he's, you know, sort of talking as as if he's reviewing for a test or something. He's not using the same language that he uses earlier to describe eschatological events. He's reviewing for the test at the end of the semester, and he's just summarizing, and he's using different vocabulary words. And we know that because he says in verse 5, don't you remember that when I was still with you, in other words, when I planted this church, led you all to Christ on the second missionary journey, I was telling you these things. 
So he's just reviewing content. And when you review content, you don't use the exact same words that you used earlier. So he's, he's building on a foundation that they already had, which is very interesting because he was of the belief that these baby Christians should understand end times prophecy. And a lot of people today don't think that way. They think uh, you sort of hide the subject matter from a new Christian. But Paul obviously didn't believe that or he wouldn't say this in verse 5. So in the process of all of these things, he starts to talk about the third thing that they haven't seen yet, which is the removal of the restrainer. And we pick it up here in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, you know what restrains him now. Now, who's the him? The him is the lawless one or the Antichrist. And what he's saying is the Antichrist can't even come on the scene right now because the restrainer is still here holding him back. You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. So the Antichrist is coming at the right time, but he can't come now because the restrainer is holding him back. Then he says this, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. So when he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, basically what he's saying is the spirit of the Antichrist is here before the actual Antichrist shows up. Uh, I'll show you a little later that 1 John 4, about verses 1 through 3, makes that identical point. Before the Antichrist comes, the world will be engulfed in the spirit of the Antichrist. In other words, the world is prepared with the spirit of the Antichrist before the Antichrist actually comes. And what he's saying here is before the lawless one, here he doesn't call him the Antichrist, he gives him a different name, the lawless one. Before the lawless one shows up, the mystery of lawlessness will already be in the world. In fact, it's at work right now, Paul says. And he said that back in A.D. 51 when he wrote this. So the mystery of lawlessness is preparing the world for the individual lawless one that will come on the scene. But the individual lawless one can't come on the scene because the restrainer is still here holding him back. So what's the big question here, right? Who's the restrainer? Or what what in the world is the restrainer? And if you ask um, two theologians this question, you'll probably get 17 answers. Because there's books and books and books and books and books that just go on and on and on trying to identify who the restrainer is. So here are probably the five major views on it. There may be more, but i got to summarize at some point. A lot of people think that the restrainer, when Paul wrote these words, was Rome, the Roman Empire. Well, the problem with that is Rome is gone. 
and the restrainer is still here. So it must be something bigger than Rome. I don't really understand how Rome could be the restrainer when it's Rome that crucified Jesus. That one has never made a lot of sense to me, but a lot of Bible commentators believe that. A second view is that the restrainer is Satan. The devil is the restrainer. That is a problem because the man of lawlessness will be the ultimate satanic masterpiece. Because if you go down to verse 9, it says, That is the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. So Satan is going to work. I think he's actually going to possess the Antichrist. But he's going to work through the Antichrist much like he worked through Judas. Uh, both Judas and the Antichrist, I think, were, will be possessed. Judas was possessed. We know from uh, John 13, I think it is. It says Satan entered him, Judas. And both uh, men, Judas and Antichrist, are called the son of destruction. In fact, if you go back to verse um, 3... You'll see that the Antichrist is called the son of destruction, the son of perdition. That's a title that's only used of two people in the Bible, Judas and the Antichrist. So I think the Antichrist is actually going to be possessed by Satan at some point. I would argue it happens about the midpoint of the tribulation period after Satan, Revelation chapter 12, is pushed out of heaven permanently. I think he will actually indwell the beast um, because the world will worship the beast, Revelation 13, verse 4, and they will also worship the dragon who gives power to the beast. The dragon giving power to the beast, Revelation 12, verse 9, Revelation 20, verse 2, is the devil. So who is this coming Antichrist? He is a satanic masterpiece. So if the restrainer is holding back the Antichrist, who is a satanic masterpiece, that means that Satan would fight against Satan. Does that make a lot of sense? I don't think it does. Because what did Jesus say in Matthew 12, verse 25? Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, and how will his kingdom stand? So here in Matthew 12, the miracles of Christ were so plain that the Jewish leadership could not deny the miracles. And so they simply attributed his miracles to the devil. And one of those miracles that Jesus was doing in Matthew 12 is he was casting out demons. So the Jewish leadership said, well, you're casting out demons by Satan's power, not God's power. And Jesus says that doesn't make a lot of sense, logically. Because if I'm casting out demons by Satan's power, that means Satan is fighting against his own demons. And so you have a house divided. And a house divided cannot stand. Of course, in American history, the famous president that used that line to preserve the union 
uh, in the Civil War era was none other than, who was that? Abraham Lincoln, a house divided itself cannot stand, and people think good old Abe came up with that statement on his own, but Abe was a believer in the Bible, read the Bible. He just took this concept, the house divided against itself cannot stand, and he applied it to what was happening at that time in American history. So all of that to say that I don't think the restrainer is Rome. I don't think the restrainer is the devil. There are a lot of people who will tell you that the restrainer is human government. Human government is not a man-made invention. It's something that God himself created in the post-flood world to restrain evil. Because in the pre-flood world, violence swept the earth. Genesis 6, verse 11. Genesis 6, verse 13. And so God, at that point, post-flood, because the sin nature continued on post-flood, established a institution called human government. He put into the hands of human government the sword. You don't spank people with swords, right? You kill them. And so this is the beginning of government and capital punishment. And God says that's necessary given man's corrupted nature. Because as some of our early founding fathers said, you're either going to be restrained by the Bible or you're going to be restrained by the bayonet. If I don't have an internal value system that says murder is wrong, then I'll just go ahead and murder who I want. In fact, there's all these videos now floating around of these uh, younger people, you know, almost for sport, you know, hitting people on sidewalks with their automobiles, hitting people in crosswalks, hitting people who are, you know, in in wheelchairs. It's a very sick world that we're living in that people even think that way, and the video captures them all high-fiving each other and... They treat it like it's some kind of video game. Maybe that's maybe that's half the problem. <laughs> maybe we got too many people watching video games and can't uh, disconnect a game from reality. But at any rate, that kind of thing would be happening all over the world if it weren't for the hand of government threatening punishment to those that do those kinds of things because that's what our nature is like. So God brought human government into existence in Genesis 9, verse 6 to prevent the world from becoming like it was a wild, wild west type of environment pre-flood. And this is what we call the Noahic covenant. It's the beginning of human government. It says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, you see that? God is not going to do this. He's created an institution to do this. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God has God made man. People have value to God because they're image bearers. So God doesn't want a world filled with violence. And so to to curb violence, because some people don't have a value system that holds them back from violence, God says, I'll punish you through the the threat of force, even the threat of death with the institution of government. Paul the Apostle, of course, uh, picks up on this in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, the institution of human government. 
He says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Well, when did God establish them? In the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9-6. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, government, does not bear the sword... Now, why is Paul talking about the sword in the hands of the state? Because that's what the Noahic covenant established in Genesis 9, verse 6. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So notice that people have a conscience. God has taken his laws and put them into the human mind and the human heart. And so why shouldn't I drive around in my car and just randomly hit people for sport or fun? Well, because I have a conscience that says that's bad to do that. But your conscience, 1 Timothy 4, around verse 2, says it can be seared as with a hot iron. You can violate your conscience so frequently that the guilt that a person feels for doing wrong starts to disappear. So what do you do when a society reaches that level? Well, God says, I have another plan, and that's the institution of human government. Because people without a conscience will keep themselves in check if they know that their bad behavior is going to be punished. So I will create an institution that punishes people for bad behavior called human government. The Noahic Covenant. Paul referring backwards to that Noahic Covenant. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. Ouch, that one hurts. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And then Paul says, Render to all what is due to them. Uh, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So a lot of people will read this and they say, well, that, that's the restrainer. Because Paul and the Noahic Covenant both teach that government restrains evil. The problem with that. <laughs> is the Antichrist is going to get his hands on global government, and he's going to use it for evil. See, Romans 13 makes perfect sense if government's doing what it's supposed to do. But what if the government itself becomes corrupt and tyrannical, which happens all over the world? I mean, you talk to someone in a, a Marxist country, communist country, Islamic country, and they'll tell you flat out the government isn't restraining evil, it's the cause of evil. 
So the Antichrist is going to come to power and he's going to represent the zenith of human government. He's going to corrupt it. And this is what makes the American experiment such a, uh, an important thing because our, our forebears <laughs> understood the sin nature. Um, you see this in Federalist paper, I think it's number 51, which is a reflection of what James Madison, uh, I believe Alexander Hamilton and John Jay were thinking when they put together our system of government. And what they say in Federalist Paper number 51 is we have a big problem here. It's called the sin nature. We've got to create a government that's strong enough to restrain the sin nature in the masses so they don't drive around in cars and hit people in crosswalks intentionally. But the people running the government have the exact same sin nature that the population has. And so it was Lord Acton that said power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, so what are we gonna do? We gotta, we gotta have government. That's why I'm not libertarian in my beliefs. It's almost like they want to abolish government. You've gotta have government, but at the same time, you have to keep an eye on it or it'll, it'll be runaway tyranny. So our founding fathers coming from this biblical view of man, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even the Harvard bureaucrats have the same sin nature as the rest of us. Can I get an amen on that? They came up with a system where we're going to make government strong and weak at the same time. And so they took power and they decentralized it. They said, we're not going to have one government, we're going to have three. Uh, the executive branch is going to enforce the law. The judicial branch, a totally separate government, is going to interpret the law. And the legislative branch is going to pass the law. And those are the only three ways political power can be wielded. Um, you'll, you'll see those three ways political power can be wielded in Isaiah 33 and verse 22. And it says there, for the Lord is our judge, that's judicial power. The Lord is our lawgiver, that's legislative power. The Lord is our king, that's executive power. And so what you'll see in the Federalist Papers is keep those branches separate. And the moment that the two branches start to merge in any way, that's the de- that's the very definition they said in the Federalist Papers of tyranny. The only person that could exercise all three is someone without a sin nature, and that, the only one that I know of is Jesus Christ. So I'm comfortable if Jesus is in office and He's our King and as our Judge and as our Lawgiver. But have you noticed the people that run the government are not really into Christianity that much, not particularly Christ-like? So, the, so the founding fathers said, separate, separate, separate these powers. So we're not going to have one government; we're actually going to have three. And then they said, you know what? That might not be enough. It might not be enough to divide power horizontally. I think we need to do it vertically. So they created two layers of government, federal and then the individual states. 
And the power was originally supposed to rest with the individual states because the individual state governments were the branch of government closest to the people. Then they started thinking, you know, that might not even stop tyranny. We need to have like a Bill of Rights. Uh, first ten amendments to the United States Constitution. Rights that people have that come from God. And one group, I think it was the Anti-Federalists, I sometimes get them mixed up, but one group said, yeah, but we all know that, we don't have to write them down. The other group said, yes, we do. We need to write these down. And so they passed, you know, through the the, uh, amendment process, the first ten amendments to the United States Constitution. You, You know them, First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, Second Amendment, right to bear arms, Fourth Amendment, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, Fifth Amendment, they can't take your property without just compensation, you can't incriminate against be, you know, forced to testify against yourself. Eighth Amendment, protection from cruel and unusual punishment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, basically what they said is this is, this is going to keep us out of tyranny because these are things that the government can't tread upon because they come from God. These are rights people have that come from God. Because the Declaration of Independence in 1776, written by Thomas Jefferson, says our rights come from God. So what the Bill of Rights is, is it's a set of handcuffs on tyranny. It's not a set of handcuffs on you as a citizen. It's a set of handcuffs on potential runaway tyranny. So it's absolutely brilliant what they did in terms of dividing power vertically uh, horizontally, and if that weren't enough, they created the Bill of Rights. And so they knew that government could become tyrannical. And this is why I'm a little uh, bothered by a current generation that just wants to get rid of all this, you know, because we all know it's inherently racist or, or something like that. No, it keeps us free is what it does. And if you don't have a system like that, uh, people will g- gravitate towards government. They'll try to take it over, and they'll use it for tyrannical purposes. And that is pretty much the default mode in human history, tyranny. I mean, what we have in the United States is an abnormality. It's, it was actually an experiment that our founding fathers started to run we got a curb runaway government because of man's sin nature. And it's lasted, you know, over, what, 240, something like that, years. But what we have here is an abnormality. Uh, essentially what the Antichrist will do is he'll get his hands on global governance and he'll use it for evil. And you have biblical precedent for that. Nimrod tried to do that in Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. And that's why God confused the language to stop tyranny. Because Genesis 11 verse 6 says, if they do this and they build this one world system, like they're trying to do at Babel, then nothing will be impossible for them. And when it talks there about nothing will be impossible for them, Genesis 11 verse 6, 
it's talking about the potential for evil, not the potential for good. Because the tyrants will be dominated by their sin nature and they'll use the institution of government to oppress the masses. And very, very sadly, that's where human history is going to end up. And I think God is going to sovereignly allow this. Because when the millennial kingdom starts, he's going to say, you all had your experiment with one world government. And how did that go for you? Well, Jesus um, didn't go very well. All right, well, let me show you how it's supposed to work when you got a guy on the throne who's not tainted by a sin nature. And th- then we could put away the Federalist Papers that were warning us about, you know, merging two of the three branches would be the very definition of tyranny. We won't need that anymore. Jesus can be uh, judge, king, and lawgiver, all rolled up into one person, because he's different than the rest of us. He doesn't have a sin nature. And I'm just trying to give you all this background to explain to you why I don't think the restrainer is human government. Because human government can and will be abused, and has been abused, and is being abused. Notice what the Antichrist will do with human government. Daniel says in this prophecy yet future, then I desired to know the meaning of the fourth beast. By the way, no extra charge for this. Do you know what Klaus Schwab calls his great global reset and World Economic Forum? He calls it the fourth industrial revolution. Maybe he's talking about the fourth beast here. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Then he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. He, that's Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High, wear down the saints. When when it talks about wearing them down, it's talking about tyranny. And by the way, when it talks about the saints there, that's not you. Because in the scripture, you have to distinguish what saints he's talking about. There's Old Testament saints. There's tribulation saints, and then there's church age saints. And unless you make that distinction, you'll throw yourself into the tribulation period intellectually because it says saints there. So the Bible uses the word saints three different ways. Here it's talking about tribulation saints. It's not talking about church age saints. This can't be the church for the simple reason that the beast is overpowering the saints. See the word wear down, overpower, crush. Didn't Jesus say something about the church? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. These people are being overpowered. This is not the church saints. This is tribulation saints. He will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the highest. 
1, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. That's the synonym for the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. When it says he will make alterations in times and law, who establishes the times and the law? God does. Uh, you'll see a reference to that on the fourth day of creation, before man ever showed up. It's in uh, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and it's in verse 14. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. That's the times and the law that man had nothing to do with setting up. Because what I just quoted there is creation day four. Man doesn't come on the scene until creation day six. So before we even came into existence as a human race, God had established times and signs and law. Well, the Antichrist is going to get his hands on global governance, and he's going to try to alter the times and the law. He's going to create a world as if God had nothing to say about it at all. And if you want a historical precedent for it, look at the French Revolution which was happening across the pond roughly the same time as the American Revolution. It was a revolution of reason. Trust reason. Trust the science, right? The science is always right. Trust the science. Reason. And um, in the French Revolution, they took the calendar... And they said, we're going to get rid of B.C. and A.D. in the calendar system. Because that reminds us of who? You know who? Jesus. Before Christ, B.C., A.D., what is that, Latin for year of our Lord's, something to that effect. And we're going to start the year at year zero. Or maybe it was year one. But they, they came up with a calendar that did not acknowledge God. They came up with a calendar that did not acknowledge that Jesus came into the world and split our calendar system. And then they said, you know, this seven-day week thing, I mean, we don't need that. We'll expand the work week to ten days instead of seven. Well, how'd that work for them? Um, <laughs> you expand the, the week to set ten days instead of seven, now you have man functioning outside of the laws that God gave him before man ever existed. And I think it's Rabbi Lappin that talks about this in one of his books. He says once they did that in the French Revolution, every negative social indicator that you can think of started to move the wrong direction. Domestic violence went up. Uh, spousal abuse went up. Heart attacks went up. High blood pressure, cardiovascular problems went up. 
and why did it go up? Why did everything start to deteriorate once they once they changed the work week from seven to ten days? Because now man is working in a way in which he wasn't designed to work. Because it's God that set up the week. And he deliberately, people say, well, do you really, you don't really believe God created the world in six days, do you? How, how could God have done that in such a short period of time? My answer is, well, what took him so long? He could have just spoken, it would have happened, but he stretched it out over six days and rested on the seventh. Why did he do that? It's in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. And Exodus 31, verses 15 through 17, he deliberately did it that way as a role model for the Hebrew work week. So the French Revolution, they wouldn't acknowledge these things. So they they were creating a society without God. They were altering the times and, and the law. So the French Revolution is sort of like a microcosm of what the Antichrist is going to do worldwide. And he's going to use the institution of government to bring it into existence. So with all of that being said, how in the world could the institution of government, which could be abused, has been abused, will be abused, how could that be the restrainer? I mean, that's not restraining anything. It's creating evil, not restraining. So the restrainer isn't Rome. The restrainer, I don't think, is Satan. I don't think the restrainer is government. Now, there's a lot of people out there today saying the restrainer is Michael the archangel. Here is a quote from Marvin Rosenthal, who was the first, among the first, to advocate the doctrine of the pre-wrath rapture of the church, which is a very deceptive title because my beliefs are pre-wrath. I just think the wrath is the whole seven-year tribulation period. Well, Rosenthal comes along in the 1990s and he basically says, no, the wrath of God is not something that really starts until the final 25% of the tribulation, roughly. Everything else up to that point in time is the wrath of Satan and the wrath of man, but not the wrath of God. And he teach, taught this despite the fact that it's Jesus opening a seven-sealed scroll in Revelation 5, causing all of the chaos. But he said, no, the, the first three quarters of it is really the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. So therefore, since the church is exempted from the wrath of God, we have to be here for 75% of the tribulation. We have to be here for three quarters of it, roughly. You know, comfort one another with these words, right? Okay, well then, what do you do with the belief that the church who has the Holy Spirit must be taken out of the way first? Oh, well, the restrainer is not the Holy Spirit in the church. The restrainer is Michael the Archangel. So this is what Rosenthal says in his book. He says, of paramount importance is the identification of the one who restrains or hinders the Antichrist until he, the restrainer, be taken out of the way. The restrainer is neither the Holy Spirit, and and he's wrong there, and I'll show you why. The restrainer is the spirit. 
and it's not just the spirit, it's the spirit inside of you. He says the restrainer is neither the Holy Spirit nor human government. And I agree with him in that last part. The restrainer is not human government. He says evidence is strained to support either of these contentions. Okay, Marvin, well then who do you think the restrainer is? See, and this is what's interesting is these guys, (laughs) they spend so much time attacking the correct view that their attacks on our view become the focus. And I'm always wondering, okay, you don't like our view, then what's your view? And they kind of roll that out, you know, when no one's looking. So, so then Marvin, who's the restrainer? He says there is, however, substantial evidence to support the, rest, uh, to identify the restrainer. He who restrains until he is taken out of the way is the Archangel Michael. So the restrainer is not the Holy Spirit through the church. The restrainer is Michael the Archangel. And coming up with that view allows him to put the church into three quarters of the tribulation period where we won't be raptured out until somewhere in the mid, somewhere in the middle of the second half of the tribulation period. Pre-wrath, rapture of the church. Um, the view at the very bottom of the screen is pre-wrath rapturism. And then uh, Rosenthal, who's now deceased and with the Lord, and so now he knows better, but... His view is now carried on by these other guys that are very active on the Internet. Uh, one of them is named Alan Kirshner. He's sort of now the new scholar that's the advocate of this pre-wrath rapture perspective. And they're all saying that the restrainer is Michael the Archangel. Well, Houston, we've got a problem. Because the participle restrainer and and there it is in brackets in greek it shifts from neuter to masculine it's neuter in verse six it's masculine in verse seven and you know what restrains neuter participle him so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, it just same participle, now it just shifted to masculine, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Here's what it looks like uh, in Greek. There's the neuter at the top there, verse 6, and then he switches to the masculine. See, in English, you know, we these nuances, we just don't really, it's not really a big part of these intricate details. But in the Greek language, this is everything. The Bible was written originally, New Testament, in Koine Greek. So how could this be Michael the Archangel? I mean, does Michael the Archangel's gender switch? I know we're in this trans kind of environment, but I, I don't think his, I don't think Michael would do like a gender surrender. He's, he's, a, he's an, he's an archangel for goodness sake. And Jude 9, I think, destroys this view. Jude makes this comment, Jude, the Lord's half brother. He says, but Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, 
Now that's a weird verse. I mean, why in the world would Michael the archangel uh, argue with Satan about Moses' body? I mean, of all the topics to talk about, why do you want to talk about that? Answer, Moses is going to need his body again. Because there's a very strong case to be made that Moses is one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. In fact, his calling card is given away there. He hits, touches the water, and it turns to blood. Kind of sounds like someone I remember about in the Old Testament, right? Moses did that. So apparently there was some kind of conversation or argument between Michael and Satan about the body of Moses. And it says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce a railing accusation against him or Satan or a railing judgment, but but said, The Lord rebuke you. I don't want to fight you, Satan. I'll let the Lord take care of you. So Michael doesn't even like to fight with Satan. So if Michael doesn't even like to fight with Satan, how in the world are you going to develop an eschatology that makes the restrainer for the last 2,000 years holding back Satan's man of the hour? I mean, that doesn't really make a lot of sense either. Because according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, Michael is indeed Satan's, uh, excuse me, Antichrist is indeed Satan's man of the hour. That is the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and false wonders. And the, this viewpoint that Marvin Rosenthal has come up with is he's got Michael stopping Satan's masterpiece for 2,000 years when Michael himself didn't even like to argue with Satan concerning the body of Moses. So how can you make Michael now interested in stopping the Antichrist, Satan's man of the hour, for 2,000 years? So I'm trying to explain why this interpretation that they've come up with, I know why they've come up with this. They don't want, <laughs> they want us in the tribulation period for three quarters of it. And the view that I'm going to give you, which I think is the correct view, goes against that. So they have to change the definition of who the restrainer is. So I understand what, what they're doing. But it's problematic. It doesn't fit with Jude 9 and it doesn't handle at all the difference in gender. Beyond that, when you look at Daniel 12, verse 1, Michael's job is to protect Israel in the tribulation period. It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, now that's a reference to Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your, your, your people, everyone who is found in the book, will be rescued. So Michael's job is Israel. Protect Israel. And she's going to need a lot of protecting, by the way, during that time period. Michael's job is not holding back Satan's man of the hour for 2,000 years. You're, you're putting Michael in a job he's not supposed to do. Uh, Tony Kessinger says uh, this of the pre-wrath rapture view. 
three-quarters rapturism, as I call it. Kind of the medium well-done group, I guess. It says the pre-wrath rapture view holds to the rather inventive idea that Michael the archangel is the restrainer. This concept fails to take into consideration Michael's special protective ministry towards Israel. Beyond that, this text, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7, talks about the restrainer being removed. Michael never removes himself. Daniel 12, verse 1 says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Israel, will arise. It never says he does his job and then disappears halfway through it. This text is talking about a restrainer that's active and then it goes. That doesn't fit Michael. Michael doesn't do something and then leave the job and go somewhere else. So they're trying to fit um, kind of a, as they say, round peg into a square hole by trying to make this Michael the archangel. So if the restrainer is not Rome and the restrainer is not Satan and the restrainer is not government and the restrainer is not Michael, then who in the world is the restrainer? I believe that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, the eternally existent third member of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit has always been and he will always be. He's just as much deity as is the Son and as the Father, although He's unique in His spiritness. How do I know that? Because Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5, verses 1 through 11, Peter says of them, You have lied to the Holy Spirit, you have lied to God meaning the Holy Spirit is God. He's the eternally existent third member of the Trinity. He just doesn't get a lot of attention because he doesn't like attention, the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Jesus said the Holy Spirit will always put the spotlight on the Son. The Holy Spirit always tries to put the spotlight on the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He doesn't like a lot of attention. So that becomes the problem of so many groups within Christianity focusing all of the time on the Holy Spirit, magnifying the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is saying, uh, can you knock it off? I don't want the attention on me. I want the attention on Jesus. Anything the Holy Spirit gets his hands on, and he is a person, because you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30. He has emotions. He's not some kind of like impersonal being, you know, like in Star Wars, you know, the Force and all that kind of stuff. He's a, he's a real personage. He's deity. And anything he touches glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, right? He guided the authors of Scripture to pen this book. What's this whole book about? It's about Jesus. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, John 5, verse 39, John 5, verse 46, you search the scriptures in vain, but these are the scriptures that talk about me. 
Why do the scriptures talk about Jesus? Because the Holy Spirit brought him into existence. And that's how I think this restrainer is. He's the Holy Spirit. Why do I think that? It doesn't say Holy Spirit here. It just says restrainer. Well, I think that for three reasons. Number one, whoever this restrainer is, he has to be omnipotent, all-powerful, because he has been holding back Satan's man of the hour for 2,000 years. That's a big job. And whoever is doing that has to be bigger than the devil. And the omnipotent Holy Spirit qualifies. He's got to be big enough to hold back Satan's man of the hour. He's got to have omnipotence. Number two, the Holy Spirit is active in the world. The Holy Spirit has ministries in the church. He has ministries in the Christian. And he has ministries in the world. And what we're dealing with here is a ministry that the Holy Spirit has in the world that he's been executing for 2,000 years. Now that fits everything we know about the Holy Spirit who is active not just in the Christian, not just in the church, but in the world. The Holy Spirit was active in the days of Noah. Did you know that? Amongst the unsaved population. That's why Genesis 6 verse 3 says, the Lord speaking, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is, he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Here's the Holy Spirit active in the world pre-flood, trying to reason with... <laughs> the population at that time. Change your ways or judgment is going to come. So the Holy Spirit is striving, working, operating. Sadly, that generation, for the most part, turned him down. By the way, did you know that right now as I speak, the Holy Spirit is doing something in the world? All the people that you interact with who are unsaved in your family... Uh, at your job, the Holy Spirit is trying to get their attention. Right now as I'm talking, He's trying to get their attention. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go. Because the disciples are saying, Jesus, please don't go. And He says, it's actually good I'm going. It's to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to assist, the Holy Spirit. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Look at that, masculine pronoun. He's a person. And when He comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, notice Singular noun, the Holy Spirit, as I speak, is not trying to morally reform the unsaved. Stop gambling, stop drinking, 
Stop easy divorce. Stop pornography. Don't get an abortion. The Holy Spirit is not involved in that. What he's involved in is convincing the world of the single sin that they are committing. And if their mindset doesn't change, they'll go right into hell because of this one sin. It's the only sin that sends you to hell. It's the sin of unbelief. That's why sin, Greek noun hamartia, is singular there. Concerning sin, and he explains what it means, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. What is the Holy Spirit doing right now in the lives of unsaved people? Number one, he's convicting, persuading them of their sin of unbelief. He's not going to believe for them. But he's showing them all of the time that they don't believe in Jesus. Number two, he's showing them that because Jesus has gone to the Father, they need his transferred righteousness, which they don't have if you don't know Christ. And number three, if you won't change your mindset on this, you're going into judgment, just like Satan is on his way out. So when you evangelize the lost, those are the three things you talk about. Because those are the things that the Holy Spirit is already doing for people. You focus on unbelief. Yeah, but what about dinosaurs and how did Noah get all the... Forget all that right now. Unbelief, transferred righteousness, or future judgment. You just keep working that into the conversation over and over again. And now you're not coming up with some evangelistic model that has nothing to do with what the Holy Spirit's already doing in people. You're cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Louis Berry Chafer called this true evangelism. So the Holy Spirit is omnipotent to hold back Satan's man of the hour. The Holy Spirit has ministries in the world. So let's just add another one, holding back Satan's man of the hour for 2,000 years. And what about the switch in gender? From neuter, verse 6, to masculine, verse 7. There's what the Greek looks like. The participle restrainer, neuter, verse 6, masculine, Verse 7. Oh, that fits the Holy Spirit perfectly. Because the Greek noun for spirit is pneuma, which is a neuter noun. But Jesus called the Holy Spirit what? He. Masculine pronoun. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He... Maybe with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides, he abides with you and will be with you forever. The paragraph I read earlier about the spirit's work amongst the unsaved, Jesus used the masculine pronoun three times to describe the Holy Spirit. 
Well, why doesn't Paul just say Holy Spirit? Because he's identifying the Spirit by his ministry. He doesn't need to say Holy Spirit because this is a what kind of course? Review course. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I was telling you these things? If I just came out and said Spirit, that would insult your intelligence. You already know that. He's identifying the Spirit by his ministry. The Holy Spirit is frequently identified by his ministry. He's called the Spirit of life. Here, he's simply called the Spirit of restraint. Don't you remember when I was with you, I was talking to you about this? So, so who is the restrainer? The restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but how does that relate to the rapture? Where does the Holy Spirit live? Anybody? He's inside of you for how long? Forever. He is restraining the Antichrist through your presence on the earth. Meaning the Antichrist can't come on the scene until the restraint leaves. And when the restraint leaves, the containers in which the Holy Spirit indwells must leave also. You follow? So we'll unpack how this affects pre-tribulational eschatology in our next lesson. Lord, we're grateful for Second Thessalonians. Help us to rightly divide this area of your word so that we're not swept into confusion in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. happy.